Welcome to Season 4 of Elevate from Elevation Barn. I'm Ted Guidotti. The most important lessons in life are the ones we don't see coming. Elevate opens our eyes and minds to new ways of looking at the world and ourselves by turning the experiences of some of the world's most accomplished leaders into conversations. We never know exactly where these conversations will lead, which is why they always surprise us. Uncovering unlikely lessons for how to have a greater impact on ourselves, our work, and our planet. When you hear the name New Jersey, what comes to mind? Atlantic City, Tony Soprano, the Jersey Shore, or maybe those wonderful iconic safety barriers that divide highways all over the United States. But sometimes you have to look just beneath the surface to see what's really there. And sometimes you have to dig even deeper. In 1838, the first relatively complete set of dinosaur bones was discovered in Haddonfield, New Jersey, less than an hour from the childhood home of Kenneth Lacavara, a man who has spent his life learning, studying, and deciphering the language of geology and what it can tell us about early life and our own. The chances of us being here at all are close to zero. But here we are. An almost impossible mind-boggling sequence of events had to take place for that to happen. So if you know where to look, what to look for, and how to decipher what you find, you'll uncover magical stories from our past and valuable lessons for our future. Kenneth Lacavara has become a master at translating the language of rocks into knowledge, discovery, and wisdom, unearthing how we got here and how we can shape where we're going. Here's superhero of science, Kenneth Lacavara, in conversation with Will Travis, founder of Elevation Barn, sharing his and other stories that can help us all live more purposeful, informed, and meaningful lives. Um, all right, Kenneth, thank you. Thank you very much for, for joining us this evening, this morning, wherever we are in the world. As a, as a point of a quick introduction, I'll start off with a little bit of a bio thing to get it going. But uh, Kenneth LaCavara is a world-leading paleontologist and discovered Titanosaurian dinosaur, Dredonautus, in Argentinian Patagonia in 2005. What he discovered has reset the course of science and captured in 2017 in the Nautilus awarded book, Why Dinosaurs Matter, and gained him the Explorers Club medal, the highest honor bestowed to the Explorers Club. He's the founder of Edelman Fossil Park of Rowan University, New Jersey. He serves as a paleontology fellow at the Academy of Natural Sciences. And I think we're on millions now, right, Kenneth, have seen your incredible TED talk about the hunting for dinosaurs and how that showed him the place in the universe. Uh, he's a musician who became a scientist and he's a former drummer at the Golden Nugget in New Jersey. So welcome, Kenneth Lacavara, uh, joining us today at the Elevation Barn. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here. It's great to see you again and uh, Joel and uh, some other friends here. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Well, well starting off, Let's let's just go because I, I hear different mixes of definition. What is a paleontology or a paleontologist to 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 the general audience? And then what do you um, find in this in this profession? Yeah, well, paleontologists are scientists who study ancient life, and mm. um, that could be dinosaurs. It could be any kind of fossilized life. So other animals could be invertebrates, things like trilobites or clams or brachiopods or corals. It could mm. be plants. It could also be the traces of life. You can be a paleontologist if you study fossil trackways and, and traces as well. And some paleontologists study single cell organisms, uh, little things like diatoms and radiolaria and foraminifera that rain down from the ocean and they're you know, really probably our most informative fossils. Uh, what paleontology isn't, and there's widespread confusion about this, is it's not archaeology. Um, so I don't know much about pyramids or mummies or pottery or arrowheads or any of that stuff. That's all very young. And archaeologists just deal with 
artifacts, right? It's the same word. Uh, mm. They deal with human-made objects that aren't very old, thousands of years old. Paleontologists deal with the natural world that is millions and millions of years old. Mm. So stop asking archaeologists about dinosaurs. It really ticks them off. And don't <laughs> ask a paleontologist about pyramids or mummies. And, and starting out in childhood, I mean, we either... Now, I, I always had friends that had like little metal detectors or they were digging in the garden. Is that is that something that kicked you off? Has it always been an insatiable curiosity or is this something that developed further on in life? Uh, I was a digger, uh, much to my dad's dismay in his lawn. And uh, <laughs> I, I would dig a lot of holes. At one point, I realized that I could hydraulically drill with a garden hose. And so I, I did that all over the yard. Um, when friends would go away, I would ask them to bring me a jar of sand back. Um, we didn't go anywhere. We, di we didn't have any money. But uh, when, when my other friends would travel, they would bring me back jars of sand from Hawaii and the Painted Desert and places like that. And um, yeah, so I was always out there, uh, you know, digging and collecting and um, always had kind of my feet in the mud. And what transitioned you into, into the profession? Well, uh, you know, from about second grade, I knew I wanted to be a, a geologist and paleontologist. I wrote a little essay in second grade about that. But mm. then I, I didn't really know how to connect the dots and get from A to B. My, my father was a carpenter. I'm, you know, people talk about first generation college. I'm first generation high school. Mm. Um, so I didn't know, certainly didn't know any scientists. The only people I knew that went to college were my school teachers. So by the time I got to seventh or eighth grade, I began thinking, well, you know, that's probably not for people like us. I'm pretty good at playing the drums, so I'm gonna stick with that. And then I got to high school and I found out that girls like it when you play the drums and that, that uh, was motivation for me at the time. And um, so that's kind of all I did in high school. And I got really good at it. I became a competitive drummer, um, toured around North America and um, ended up playing in California for about a year and then uh, came back to New Jersey and spent a year as the house drummer at the uh, Gold Nugget Casino in Atlantic City. And then something happened in, uh, in 1980. Um, this book, uh, Cosmos by Carl Sagan came out. Mm. And I read this book and I felt like he was just speaking just to me. I felt like this book was written for me, answering all the questions that I had about the world and the universe. And I realized then that, no, I have to become a scientist. I have to find a way to become a scientist. So um, I got myself back into school. Uh, I was taking what is called now a gap year. Back then it was just called dropping out. Um, so I got myself back into school, uh, did well enough to get into a good graduate program at the University of Maryland. And then really did well there and got into a very good uh, geology doctoral program at the University of Delaware. Um, got my PhD, got super lucky, got a job right out of that. And I remember going back to, it was probably my 10 year class reunion uh, for high school. And people would come up and they'd say, um, hey Ken, how you doing? Where are you playing? And I'd say, well, actually I have a PhD in geology and I'm a professor at Drexel University. And 100% of the time the response was, so where are you playing? <laughs> yeah. That's it. Do you still play? When I, I play every day. Yeah. You got your kid there, so. Yeah. And now I, I have a 14-year-old son and I have, um, you know, been kind of inculcating him with uh, music and jazz and he's starting to learn to play his uh, blues progressions. And so now I have a house band here, which is nice. And do you actually have a garden or is it just a big pile of rocks and stuff that you're both digging up? Uh, we have a we have a good bit of land here, and then um, we have a, a nice um, you know fossil park not too far from here, twenty minutes from here, where we have sixty five acres. Yeah, it's incredible that New Jersey has a fossil park. I couldn't believe that when you when you when you told us about it. tell us tell us about that how that exists. Yeah, well, you know, um, every spot on Earth has an amazing four and a half billion year history. Where you are sitting right now, wherever you are, has an incredible history. And mm. dinosaurs, which dominated the world's terrestrial ecosystems for 165 million years, mm. were cosmopolitan. They were on every landmass, including Antarctica, which wasn't glaciated. So they were, they were everywhere. You see 
you know, on the Discovery Channel or on Nat Geo, you see us paleontologists always seemingly working in deserts, um, which is true. But that's not because that's where dinosaurs were. It's because that's where today rocks are exposed. So we have to go where we can see the rocks, where we can get to the rocks. But it doesn't mean that there weren't dinosaurs everywhere else. And so dinosaurs are first recognized as a distinct group of organisms in the middle of the 19th century. A, a, a British anatomist, Richard Owens, um, gets a few scrappy remains that are turning up in the, in the Tilgate Forest south of London and some other places in Britain. And he sees that they have some features that set them apart from other reptiles. And so he actually calls them a, a tribe of crocodile lizards. He doesn't really know what they are because his remains are so poor. And he gives them the name dinosaur, which means terrible lizard. And they're not lizards at all. So that's 1842. It's not until 1858 that the world gets its first real look at a dinosaur skeleton. And that is found in a marl pit in Haddonfield, New Jersey, about 12 miles north of where I sit. So that's 1858, and then in 1866, the world's first tyrannosaur is discovered. It's not T-Rex. There are about 25 tyrannosaurs. T-Rex is certainly the most famous, found in 1905, but the first discovered was found in 1866, also in southern New Jersey. So world's first nearly complete dinosaur skeleton, world's, world's first tyrannosaur, lots of other species uh, were found here. And... Wow. Um, this became sort of a hotbed of paleontology for about 20 years. And then people found out how much exposure there was out in places like Montana and Wyoming and Utah. And the paleontologists kind of all went out there and never came back. Um, but there's, there's lots of great stuff here on the East coast of the U S. So how, I mean, not just, you know, you look around and it's like, well, I've got that aged uh, piece of ground below my feet. Can, if I just start digging, I could. There's a chance, or is it? Is how do you find a dinosaur? I mean, you you found, you know, um, so many dinosaurs now. And when you actually found, you know, Drednortus, you were in the southernmost part of South America. So there's obviously some strategy. How how do you go about finding them? There is. It's you know we have a method. Otherwise, you you couldn't have a career doing it. And actually, this is. This is the question that I get asked most, which uh, when I was invited to give a TED talk, I thought, well, I'm going to start off with that question. So I start with how do you find a dinosaur? And I go through it. And really, there's there's three steps. First, you have to find um, rocks of the right age. Dinosaurs existed between about 235 million years ago and 66 million years ago, unless you count the birds, which are dinosaurs. So you have to find rocks in that age interval. And that, that's actually a pretty narrow gap in Earth history. Um, they have to be sedimentary rocks because you can't form a fossil from lava, right? An igneous rock like you might have in Bali, and you can't form a rock, a fossil in metamorphic rocks that have been heated and squeezed. Um, so you have to have sedimentary rocks like sandstone or shale. And then today you need to have exposure of those rocks. And that usually occurs in a desert or a bad land or in the case of New Jersey, in a, in a mine, in a quarry, which is like an artificial badland. And if you have those three things and you get yourself on the ground, you don't just dig a hole and hope to get lucky. You get yourself on the ground and you walk until you see a bone sticking out of the rock. And that's what you do. And then the, the fourth part that I like to add, which I had in Patagonia, and I say in the TED Talk, is I like to get as far away from other paleontologists as possible. <laughs> Uh, because when you find something, if you're in unexplored territory, you have a very good chance of that being a, a new creature to science. And, you know, that's one of the things that we're kind of always that we always have our eye out for. Wow. So what was what's the reaction when you when you're and, and, and Dredd and Nautis, the, 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 the first bone you found was over two meters, 2.2 meters. Yeah. Seven feet, one inch. Which part of the, that, that was the thigh, thigh bone? Yep, thigh bone, the femur, which is the largest bone in your body and in dinosaurs' bodies. So, so tell us about, is it a her or a he? Or is it, did they, did they go either way? We, they had males and females. Um, okay. It's not clear, but I, I have a suspicion that the, the first one I found was a male because I actually found two dreadnoughtists. Um, one is about a third smaller than the other, 
But mm. when we cut open the bones and make thin sections of the bones, like everyone in, in the room here tonight, I could look at a thin section of your bone and I could tell that you were all adults. I would be able to see the, what we call osteological senescence, that your bones have mm. stopped growing, that they've organized themselves out to the margin. If I looked at a teenager's bones or a child's bones, I could see that, that their bones were just throwing down bone cells at that moment and then later they would get organized, but they're just really trying to grow fast. So what we see with the two dreadnoughtus individuals is we have one that is a third smaller, but it's osteologically very mature. It looks old. And the really big one was growing rapidly at the time that it died. And so if you have a, a young, really big individual and an older, much smaller individual, that kind of says um, male-dominated sexual selection, like you have a lot with a lot of herd animals. Think elephant seals, where the male could be like eight times the size of the female. So it makes me think that that they had that kind of um, societal structure and evolutionary you know, strategy, if you will. I, dinosaurs are a long-lived group of organisms, and they're very speciose. So there was probably every ecological strategy among them. I'm sure that there were cases where it was um, female selection. And in that case, what you see is think of um, like the bird of paradise, right? It, it, the males go through this elaborate dance and they have this you know, incredible plumage. And essentially, essentially the message there is, look, I'm so good at being a bird, I can waste all this energy on this other stuff, on dancing crazily and growing all kinds of plumage or making pigment that I don't really need to survive. So that's how good I am at being a bird. Pick me, right? Mm. Um, that's if it's female selection. If it's male selection, it's I'm big and tough and I'm going to knock everybody out of the way and I'm going to be the one to pass on my genes. So how big? How big was this dinosaur? Dreadnoughtus in life was mm. uh, 26 meters, it's 85 feet, uh, two and a half stories at the shoulder, and all fleshed out, it would have weighed about 65 tons. So Whoa. that's the mass of 13 African elephants, that's the mass of nine T-Rex, that's about 10 tons heavier than a Boeing 737. Wow. Yeah, a staggering creature. That's incredible, I mean, how was your reaction when you, 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 you obviously you say so you start scraping away, right? Just take, take us through the process that you go so, through. Cause we see things in movies, but how, what's the reality? Have you been digging now for like weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, or is, is there scouts out there? Are you, I had a, I had a crew of probably at that point, maybe six people and we were scouting and I had been down there uh, the year before and had located uh, several dozen sites that I had. Mm. Uh, GPS uh, that I knew, you know, we wanted to investigate further. Um, oftentimes, especially in, in a badlands like this, the surface is very weathered and very easy to excavate. And then as you go down a little bit further, it gets harder and harder. And eventually the rock is like concrete. So right on the surface, um, I had found about this much of the uh, femur exposed. It took us almost no time, probably just a half hour to uncover the whole uh, seven foot long femur, the two meter femur. Um, and then I could see that below that, there was the, the, the tibia, the shin bone, and then the fibula, and I could see some vertebra over to the side. And so my reaction was very pragmatic. At the time, um, I had been a professor at Drexel University in Philadelphia for, um, for about five years. And, mm. and uh, so at that point, you're an assistant professor. And I took out my GPS and I put in a point and I labeled it tenure. Hilarious. <laughs> That's so good. Because at that and, point, and, I kind of knew everything was going to be okay. It was going to be, that was the tipping point. Yeah. And who was the first person you called? Um, you know, I don't remember. I, I mean, I didn't call anybody. I was in the field. Um, I don't remember who I told first when I got back. When I when, when I'm in Patagonia, I'm incommunicado. Um, right. This was you know, uh, this was before satellite phones really worked well. I had one, but I would have to hike for an hour to get to a top of a mountain for it to work. Yeah. So I was down there for you know months at a time, and I would uh, 
you know, I would kind of check out and tell people, well, I'll see you in like, and I wouldn't even know, I'd say, I'll see you in like two to four months. And they'd just be waiting to see what you, you dad brought back. Yeah. yeah I spent awesome. a total of, um, of a year living in my tent next to Dreadnoughtus. Oh my goodness. In Patagonia, it's not the warmest place in the winter. No, we would be down there in the Austral summer, but we basically would fly over summer because we're very close to Antarctica there. We're close to Tierra del Fuego. So always yeah. cold. Sometimes in the morning, the drinking water inside my tent would have a little ice on it. And then it's, it's ridiculously windy in Patagonia. My first field season down there, I provisioned cereal for the crew to eat for breakfast. Well, you can't eat cereal for breakfast in Patagonia because it blows off your spoon before you can eat it. <laughs> um, and then in the middle of the night, usually around 3.30 in the morning, the wind would really kick up. And if you were lying next to the end of your tent, the edge of your tent, the tent starts slapping you in the face like this in the middle of the night. And uh, it was, you know, it's not for everybody, but if you love the work, none of that other stuff matters. When you're in the field in a place like that, you are never comfortable. You're, you're almost always cold, sometimes hot. Your hands are, you know, broken and blistered and bleeding and you know food poisoning's a thing and you're tired and you're losing weight because you can't get enough food out there um mm. but none of that matters when you stand back and every day you look at something that no human being has ever seen before and every day you know something that no human has ever known before and uh, i think the most sublime moment that i ever had there was kind of a at peak dreadnoughtus. We had like, we had more of it exposed than we had ever had before or since. So you could really see this amazing skeleton laying in the desert. And there was a non-periodic comet that came through. It surprised NASA and everybody. It was called Comet McNaught, only visible in the Southern hemisphere. And we, you know, we, we don't have news. So I saw this little fuzzy thing in the sky and then the next night it looked a little bigger and then it had a tail and then it had a really big tail. And I can remember at night, I was up at the quarry by myself, sitting on a rock, overlooking Dreadnoughtus with this comet hanging in the sky above it, drinking a glass of whiskey. And I just thought, you know, life's never going to get any sweeter than that. That's awesome. And it's so true, though, like, like the chance that, you know, 100, 160 million years dinosaurs existed. And is that right? Around uh, around that time, Close. yeah. And 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 we're around for this pimple of a moment yeah. on the the global scale of of planetary existence. And to be able to sit there and discover the largest known, I guess, uh, being on the planet ever, you must have felt pretty like, damn, that's that's. <laughs> That's a mic drop right there. No, it's like incredible. Um, yeah, I feel that every day, honestly, Will. I mean, I feel like um, I've I've had um, way more fortune than any uh, carpenter's son has a right to expect. But I'm probably a proud father for doing it. So, so tell us a little bit more um, about dinosaurs, because you know we look at these 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 beasts, and a lot of us get to know them through films like Jurassic Park, and they're always seen as like. Oh, it, it brains quite small. They must have been stupid because they they became extinct. There's all these sort of different um, hypotheses. Yet we know they were obviously very adaptable and, and extremely brilliant. What is this? What is this? Uh, this career for you brought to the world the knowledge that you're bringing with other paleontologists. But what what are the d dinosaurs teaching us? Well, I think you know it's not just dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. You know, if, if, to use an art metaphor, they're, they're my medium, right? But you could do this right. with other creatures as well. And really, you know, what it tells me, if, if, you, if you learn to speak the language of the rocks, um, it's all of a sudden the rocks become your library, right? There's a story and every moment in earth history is preserved in, in a rock somewhere in the world. And what geologists and paleontologists do is you find a, a page of the story here, somebody else finds a page there, and eventually you start to put together the, the plot of the story. And if you learn that language and, and you start to listen to the rocks, they start to whisper back to you and they say the same thing wherever you are in the world. And what they say is it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this particular way. 
that history is so contingent and you can roll back the the movie and play it over and over and over again and it will never ever turn out the same way twice and there are so many instances back in history that you can look at and and infinitely more that we will never recognize but you could go back to say the Burgess Shale which is exposed in the mountains right above Banff Canada Mm. and uh, they have about a half a billion year old uh, rocks there there's no life on land at this time there's only life in the shallow seas and this is a, a time of incredible evolutionary adaptation all these sort of experiments are going on let's let's try an animal with seven eyes let's try one with five eyes and just all kinds of crazy things are happening at this mm. point and the world's first macro predator evolves uh, called anomalocaris it's it's um think of it like a really nasty pill bug right and it's, mm. it's about a meter across it's got these weird feeding appendages that they used to think were independent creatures um and it's got this big kind of radial mouth that looks like an old tiny pencil sharpener so it's, it's a monster basically and it's mm it's many, many times larger than anything else in its ecosystem. So if you could go back there and say, bet on a winner, who's going to be the evolutionary winner in this? You'd probably all pick Anomalocaris. But mm. living with Anomalocaris is this little tiny wormy creature. It's about a centimeter and a half long, um, totally soft, mucks about in the bottom of, of these tidal flats. Um, doesn't look like it would ever amount to much, but it has some very interesting features. It has some, it has all of its sensory organs concentrated anteriorly right at the top. Um, it has bilateral symmetry. It has a one way digestive system, which I happen to think is the best kind of digestive system. Um, and has uh, V shaped muscles. Like if you open up a, a salmon fillet, well, that little thing called pikea, is the progenitor of all vertebrate animals. So if that wow. thing doesn't make it out of the Cambrian, there will never be dinosaurs, there will never be whales or wombats or hoary bats or Bactrian camels or you and me. And you know what would it take to go back into the Cambrian and tip the scale so that that thing doesn't make it out? The asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs was a completely chance encounter with the Earth. That asteroid formed along with the solar system. So it's, it was four and a half billion years old, always out there hovering over the planet while life was, you know, just single cell organisms. And then when life was just things like jellyfish, and then when dinosaurs were, were young and small and, and could menace nothing more than a bug and something put it on a collision course with the earth. You could go back four and a half billion years ago and literally hit it with a piece of popcorn and change that day so that that collision never happened. Mm. Well, mammals evolved early in the history of dinosaurs and for the entire 165 million year reign of the dinosaurs, we were living in the hidden and forgotten recesses of the dinosaur world, our little shrew-like ancestors, never really able to get ahead, never to come out in the, in the daytime. And, um, and then that asteroid hits and wipes out all the dinosaurs in a day. And then our little shrewy ancestors come out under the, the blue skies and, you know, begin their hegemony on the planet and evolve very quickly into primates and whales and large hooved animals and everything that we see today. And that's all contingent on just that chance encounter. Another one is 38 million years ago, there's this weird kind of wolf sheep like creature on the Southern shores of Asia kill that thing off. And today there are no whales. Uh, six million years ago in North Africa, you shift the winds one way or another and humans evolve or do not evolve, right? As, as uh, grasslands, as forests turn to grasslands or not. So mm. the contingencies are just endless and, and mind boggling. I think of them as like this infinite kaleidoscope of things and events interacting with one another that we will never fully understand. But what it tells me is that everything matters. Mm. Everything matters and that everything had to happen. Trillions upon trillions of events had to have happened at the right time in the right sequence for us to have the reality that we have today. If they didn't, well, there would be another reality and it probably wouldn't include us. But that tells us that we are all basically cosmic lottery winners. The odds of you and me and all of us are 
practically zero, yet here we are. And it also mm. tells us that you know, our future is not guaranteed. Our future is just as contingent as our past. So there are a lot of things that we can do to completely screw up any prospect we have of enjoying the kind of future that we would all want for our posterity. And we're doing a lot of them right now. Mm. And um, so, you know, I think we can look at the fossil record as a cautionary tale that the earth doesn't need to have humans. It mostly hasn't had humans, and it certainly doesn't need to have humans in the future. And um, we need to learn from the past. When you think about it, it's the only thing we have, right? I mean, the present is nothing. The, the sentence I'm speaking right now is in your past. The future is completely inaccessible. Nobody remembers the future. Nobody can do experiments in the future. So how do we learn from the past? Mm. And it was Winston Churchill who said, the further back you look, the further ahead you can see. So if we really want to understand this very perilous environmental future that we're sailing into largely blind, we need to pay attention to the deep time record of our planet. And does that make you, I mean, if you think about life on other planets, do you believe that there could be because of what we've been through or? Undoubtedly, sure, there has to be. It, it would mm. be statistically ridiculous that this would be the only planet among the trillions and trillions of planets in our universe that has life. Mm. Um, you know, do I think there's life like us? Well, maybe not. I mean, that we went down this very complex sequence of events to lead to us, but there would be other equally complex sequence of events that would lead to other things. It's most probable that most life out there is simple life, right? Like bacteria. We went most of our history with very simple life. If you crunch Earth history down the four and a half billion years to a single calendar year with the Earth starting on January 1st, we don't get bacteria until March. And we don't get anything as complicated as a jellyfish until June. And we don't get anything as complicated as a little trilobite until the end of November, Thanksgiving. So almost all of our history, 11 months out of the year, has been very, very simple life. It's probably the case everywhere, but uh, you know, if, if you're familiar with the, uh, the Drake equation, uh, Frank Drake was an astronomer in the, in the, um, in the 70s who came up with a, an equation to calculate the probability of life on a given planet. And he goes through all these things like time of formation and you know, the probability of, of water and this and that. But then the last thing is, what's the probability that intelligent life has destroyed life on that planet? So it may be that there's a lot of life in the universe and that as soon as it develops into intelligent life that's able to geoengineer its planet with things like combustion engines and nuclear weapons, maybe that life extinguishes itself almost immediately. We don't know. Mm. One of the things that the, the SETI program has shown us is that you know, certainly there are not a lot of uh, radio users out there in our immediate part of the galaxy, whether that's because that's just a momentary technology that they blow through or because civilizations destroy themselves essentially as soon as they arise, we don't know, or that there aren't these civilizations. Amazing. So I'm gonna open it to uh, a few other people who've got some questions in a second. How, how, so if you do have a question, just pop it on the chat and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a shout to ask it um, to Kenneth. Um, so how's your feeling towards where the world's going now with the, the metaverse and we're, we're escaping from the physicality all into the virtual world? Are we going to be just like heads with little legs in the future? I mean, the speed of evolution and as you talk about these coincidences, but how is your feeling towards this having a 14 year old son and, and knowing that this world is now pivoting away from evolution in the physical into a whole new uh, uh, ether? I'm, you know, I feel conflicted about it. I, I can see the, the good that can come of it in, in the museum that we are designing. We have a virtual reality chamber in there, which I think will be a very compelling experience to put on the goggles and wear the haptic vest and feel the vibrations and the wind and the, and the heat. Um, on the other hand, you know, there's no better reality than the one that we have right outside our door. Uh, it's just an incredible planet that we live on, and it would be a very sad and impoverishing thing, I think, for humanity to lose contact with the amazing reality that, that we do have 
you know, I hope it can be used for good. Um, the mm. track record of humanity isn't particularly confidence inspiring in that regard. Mm. But, you know, there's also, you know, if you look at our particular route of evolution, like us humans, we're not, we're not good at much, right? Like we're not fast. We're not really strong. We're not tough. We're, you know, our skin's pretty soft. Our teeth are pretty wimpy. Our claws are nothing. We're good at thinking, right? That's our trick. We can't paint pictures with sonar like a bat can. And, you know, we can't run 60 miles an hour like a cheetah can, but we're really good at thinking. And, you know, our brains have limitations. They can only store and recall so much information. And then we, you know, we got around that by creating second brains called books. And we started storing information in these that we could retrieve. And then we started doing the same thing in computers. And, you know, maybe that's a next step in that, but I'm not yet convinced that it's going to be used to um, expand our mentality. Mm, I'm with you on that. All right, so going over some questions. Emma, you have a question about giant humans. Hello, I do, but it was, at, it was Matt, so um, <laughs> Matt, would you like to ask the question? <laughs> we're both on today. <laughs> and we're both very interested by your chat. Thanks very much for chat, Kenneth. Sure. Um, I have um, some some quite out there thoughts from from my research as well. So I don't have dreadnoughts, but I have other things which I haven't actually named yet. But I spent my whole life researching these amazing things. I collected fossils when I was a kid, so I find it all very fascinating. And one thing I wonder is if they have found many bones, not just of the dinosaurs, but of like the giant humans. And um, all the pictures I see in the hieroglyphics in Egypt of the big cone-shaped Egyptian kings and heads, and in Petra they have the big giants. They have the big giants that sit on top of the buildings, and many of them were seen to be sixty foot tall and eighty foot tall, and they found bones and stuff. And I don't know if you've ever found any stuff like that. That's what really fascinates me. And um, and also, um, yeah. Well, well, is there anything else down in Patagonia that we don't know about? Any other countries or anything like that that you found that you can talk about? Well, um, to your first question, no, I haven't certainly. I, I certainly haven't found anything like that. Um, and, you know, I think we are often surprised by the natural world. But in science, um, we don't believe things, right? We accept or reject based on evidence. And so if there are such things, we have to see those things and we have to be able to make repeatable observations. And then those observations have to stand the, withstand the scrutiny of peer review and be published in a scientific journal. That's, that's how science works. And, you know, there are a lot of things that I wish were in the world. I wish there was a Loch Ness monster and a, and a, and a Sasquatch, but, you know, no one has been able to make repeatable observations or collect physical evidence um, or withstand the scrutiny of peer review and, and publish those kinds of results in, in a scientific journal. Um, so, you know, to my knowledge, there's, there's not uh, publishable evidence of that sort of thing, but, you know, we would never say never. Uh, things do turn up that we don't expect. As far as uh, Patagonia, lots of things yet to be discovered there. Um, there has been very little uh, paleontological work in the southern part of Patagonia. Um, I left skeletons in the ground um, and almost certainly some of those are, are new species, species uh, unknown to science. And, you know, I think as, as far as discovering uh, dinosaurs worldwide, I'd be surprised if paleontologists have, have discovered more than one or 2% of the species that ever lived. And if you look at the rate of discovery, if you go back a hundred years ago, it was about one new species a year. By the seventies, it was about six a year. Now there's a new dinosaur species that's published about once a week. Um, wow. it's, it's almost, well, it is impossible to keep up um, because we have, you know, it's not really better technology. It's just there's more people on the planet and a small fraction of those become paleontologists. And the world 
is generally getting more free, although it's kind of backsliding a little bit now. And so you have just more eyeballs on more of the earth and, and an increasing rate of discovery. Do you believe that there was a, an event that petrified them? And then, so they change form like petrified wood. All of a sudden, um, so I see some fossils, they look like turkey tail mushrooms when you look at them, but they're actually complete onyx crystals and stuff like that. And I am a little bit of a fan of Harry Potter. And so when it talks about being petrified <laughs> and things turn to stone, I always find that quite interesting how something so pristine got instantly turned into a perfect uh, you know, specimen. Nothing. There are cases. So your bones are already minerals, right? You're made of, of a mineral called apatite, which is a, um, a um, calcium phosphate. And sometimes minerals are replaced by other minerals. So there are cases of fossils turning into uh, pyrite or amethyst or other minerals because the minerals that they were made of got replaced. So that, that does happen, actually. Okay. Thanks for putting that to rest for me, Kenneth. Sure. I really appreciate you. Awesome. Uh, jo um, Joelle, your question about deepest mysteries. Yes, yes. Hi, Ken. So, so happy to see you here. Um, so tell me, after all that you've unearthed, all, after everything you've uncovered, everything you've discovered, what to you, what remains the deepest and the most gigantic mystery? Well, um, <laughs> there are a lot. I mean, there's just thinking about dinosaurs. There are there are so many aspects of their lives that we don't understand. Um, we we the soft parts aren't preserved. So you know we think we understand what their internal organs were like, but we don't really know. And if you look at sauropod dinosaurs, the big ones like Dreadnoughtus, it's really not clear to us how they consume the calories that they obviously did to create such a surplus to grow so fast and so large, it's really extremely impressive. Um, we don't understand a lot about their physiology. It's pretty obvious that the big ones are, um, are um, endotherms and that they are, you know, you would call it warm blooded, but they're not warm blooded in the sense that we are where we actively heat up our bodies. They're just hot because they're so damn big. Right. And so their main metabolic challenge is shedding heat all the time. And that long neck and long tail provide a huge uh, surface area per volume. So it kind of acts like a giant radiator. And then they have this sort of two stroke lung uh, rather than the bellows lungs that we have, where we're always mixing good air and bad air. Um, they have a system where they never mix the good air and the bad air. And but we don't know if that is connected to a air sac system that they have in their in their spine i would love to know the answer to that um, we don't know a lot of the details of fossilization so about 25 years ago a, a colleague and good friend of mine uh, mary schweitzer at north carolina state university um, began recovering ancient molecules from fossils like dinosaurs uh, collagen protein and blood vessels and blood cells and we understand very little about the mechanisms that lead to that kind of preservation. We used to call it extraordinary preservation. I don't call it that anymore because I can do that and recover those kinds of tissues and cells almost any time I want in my lab right now. Um, but it's not clear to us what the biogeochemical processes are that lead to a condition where collagen, meat, really, can be preserved for you know, 60, 70, 90 million years. How does that happen? We have some hypotheses and we're testing them actually, but that's something that I would love to know. And another thing that's a big mystery in paleontology is we'll, we will see a group of animals appear on one continent and that you, know, you can understand, okay, they evolved there, they started to spread out. And then sometimes we'll see those animals appear on a continent across an ocean. And it's not clear to us how that happens. We do know from today that, that certain animals um, raft, as we call it, they get 
caught in flotsam after a storm and they get washed out to sea. And, you know, if you just think in the fullness of time, I mean, what is the chance of a, a fairly large dinosaur getting caught in some flotsam and making its way across the ocean and then having eggs with it? Probably almost zero, but you do have tens of millions of years with which to work. And so over the vastness of geological time, really improbable events actually become probable because you just get to do that experiment so many times. But there are lots of things like that that are just total mysteries um, to us in paleontology. Awesome. Uh, Ted, you've got a good one that builds off that about animals. Yeah, I, I sort of said maybe it's a stupid question, but it, it, it's maybe more of a simple question. I'm wondering about what accounts for size um, in in the creatures that roam the earth. Was there something um, about prehistoric earth that was conducive to, to to very large creatures? We we have very few. I know that there. You know, I've heard of you know the the little people in Flores, the sort of parallel um, uh, uh, evolution of man. So I'm wondering, is it just the push and pull of, of evolutionary forces or is there something, why don't we have animals that are 13 times the size of dinosaurs walking the earth now? Yeah, some of that we understand based on ecological principles and some of that back to Joel's question is a mystery that I would really love to know the answer to. And so, um, you know, in an ecosystem, you can take the energy and you can divide it up into many smaller animals, or you can concentrate it in, you know, fewer, very large animals. In the Mesozoic and in the Cretaceous period in particular, the, the, um, the latter seemed to have happened a lot, fewer, very large animals. And, and I think one of the keys to that is that with dinosaurs, the, the young, the, the hatchlings, they don't scale with adult body size. So you think, oh, a baby dreadnoughtus must be huge. It's not true. A baby dreadnoughtus hatches from an egg that's this big and it's about the size of a house cat. So you could have a dozen dreadnoughtus on your kitchen table. So what that means is that a dreadnoughtus that's tiny like that is living in the forest and doing tiny dinosaur things. And then it grows a little and it does sheep-sized dinosaur things and then cow size and elephant size and then herd of elephant sized dinosaur things. So it's one species, but it's capturing resources from the ecosystem in all these different ways. It's capturing an entire column of ecosystems, of, of energy rather, that today would be divided between lots of species that were different sizes and doing lots of things. So that seemed to be a really beneficial ecological you know, method for, or evolutionary method for dinosaurs. Um, why they got just so damn big, I don't know. I, that is a mystery to us. Now, uh, you know, it's a bit of a misconception that that was the age of giants and then the age of giants passed because the by far the largest animal to ever live in the world is alive today, right? The blue whale. The blue whale is, is three or four times the mass of a dreadnoughtus. Granted, they're cheating. They float, right? Mm. But... Um, but huge. And the largest organism to ever live is alive right now. And those are the, the giant sequoia trees. Um, mm. So this is an age of giants. It's different kinds of giants. And after the, the dinosaurs went extinct, mammals started to go that route. And about 25 million years ago, there was a huge hornless rhinoceros called Paraceratherium. And that thing was like 25 tons. That was, you know, respectable sauropod dinosaur size, then it was a rhinoceros. So mammals have gone that route too, uh, to some degree, but it's, it's really not clear what are the, the ecological and evolutionary pressures that you know, push things into gigantism. Not to me anyway. Awesome, thanks. Larry, you talk about uh, dinosaurs in the ocean. I'd like to unmute. Sure. I know that the study, of course, of dinosaurs who don't necessarily specialize in both terrestrial and aquatic. Um, I studied marine biology, so it's super interesting. But you hear a lot, you know, as a kid, you can you think of like, you know, dinosaurs ex exhibitions and you think of the museums and they're hanging up. But you don't hear much about aquatic dinosaurs. Could you tell us more about, you know, how you come about finding those? Because, of course, it's much harder because it's you can't necessarily get down there. Well, so um, all dinosaurs lived on land, actually, and oh, okay. they're, um, 
there are very, very large, very scary creatures living in the world of dinosaurs, but they're actually not dinosaurs. And they're often thought of as dinosaurs, but things like mosasaurs, mm-hmm. um, which are essentially huge uh, marine Komodo dragons, um, they branch off. If you, if you think of this as being the ancestral dinosaur, and to be a dinosaur, you have to have a dinosaur for an ancestor, right? So you have to have this dinosaur um, and 100% of this dinosaur's descendants are what we call the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, the mosasaurs branch off before there is the first dinosaur. And then in every children's books, you see the, the pterosaurs, like the pterodactyls, mm-hmm. also not dinosaurs. They branch off before there is the first dinosaur. So you you can't be a dinosaur if you don't have a dinosaur in your family tree. The reason we're mammals is because we have the first mammal for an ancestor. It's the same reason a hamster is a mammal, right? Um, But those big marine creatures like the mosasaurs and the plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs, there was just a huge ichthyosaur found in um, Britain published this past week. You should Google that. It's incredible. they live along with the dinosaurs, but actually a lot of those marine deposits are now preserved on land. So at the site that I work in New Jersey, we're actually working in marine deposits that are 66 million years old. So mostly we find marine creatures there and we find the remains of mosasaurs, those giant sea lizards. Um, but we're close enough to the ancient coast. If you not today's, but if you imagine the paleo coast, we're close enough to that that we get a little bit of a mix of marine and terrestrial. We get what are called bloat and float dinosaurs. So a dinosaur dies on the beach, ends up in the water, they get, they get their lungs full of marine water and they sink. And then the carcass starts to rot and the carcass fills up with decay gases. And then they become, this is kind of gross, they become like these giant bobbing meat buoys that float out to sea. And as that carcass rots, then parts of the skeleton start to drop to the seafloor. And then we get a mix of marine and terrestrial fossils in the same deposit. Yeah, so interesting. Wow. Paul, you have one. I just like to say meat buoy. Meat buoy. Meat (laughs) buoy. Well, Kenneth, this has been awesome. Um, Thank you so much for sharing. And um, in the spirit of uh, the James Webb Telescope being launched and going to peer back in time to, you know, help us understand our universe and our place in it, um, if you could go back in time, um, how far would you want to go? Well, you know, I people always expect that I will. I would say, you know, that I would want to go back and see Dreadnoughtus or or some other dinosaurs. I want to go back to the Burgess Shale. Um, that place in Canada where all of the phyla that we have today originated. And I want to see the first mollusk and the first chordate uh-huh. and you know, the first brachiopod. And just like, it's just such an incredible time in earth history where, you know, really the course of almost everything was set in those very fragile moments in those slimy, muddy, you know, tidal deposits. So kind of when some of the recipes were putting being put together. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Sure. Love it. And Gavin, you got the last question there, mate. Last but not least. Hey, Ken. Last Thanks very much. Me. Very, very interesting stuff. I love it. Yeah. Um, from your experience, can you tell us your thoughts on where we are now as human beings on a planet? Because we're systemat- systematically depleting all our resources and our ecosystems and any thoughts on how to solve where we're at and where we're headed. So we don't end up like your friends, the dinosaurs. Yeah. With the, with the, you know, worse than the the dinosaurs, I'd say, because, you know, they were hit by this random encounter of an asteroid space. They didn't really have a say in it. Um, We are the asteroid right now (laughs) and we can do something about it, but we're not doing what we need to do about it. So I think our place is very, very perilous right now. And I'm, I'm gravely concerned about it. Um, you're starting to scare the geologists. And when you scare the geologists, it's bad because we've seen everything. And so uh, this summer, we passed uh, 419 parts per million uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. That hasn't been seen for about 3 million years. So that takes us back to something like Australopithecus time, right? Like Lucy, 
So now we have created an atmosphere for our site ourselves that no human or, or anything much like a human has ever experienced. And if we continue on the business as usual trajectory, we're looking at a thousand parts per million by the year 2100. And these systems have some lag in it and it takes time to produce these effects. But the last time we saw a thousand parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere was about 50 million years ago. And when that happened, there were crocodiles and rainforests in the Arctic. So, you know, does that lead to human extinction? I'm not sure that it does. We're probably a pretty persistent species, but I do not think that human societal systems and economic systems and governmental systems withstand that kind of disruption. So I think we're moving into a really scary place if we do not um, arrest what we're doing to the climate. And then the thing that isn't talked about so much is we have a parallel existential crisis that is every bit as dire, and that is the biodiversity crisis. And right now the biodiversity on the planet is just crashing. Um, there are you know, stories every year or so about the, the biomass of the animals on the planet. And if you went back a, a hundred years ago, 1% of the biomass of earth was humans and our animals. And now it's the inverse of that. Almost all the biomass of Earth now, you know, something in the high 90% consists of humans and our animals. So the wildlife of Earth has just been shoved in, into the corner, really. And, you know, none of us are photosynthetic. We require other species to live. And um, we, you know, all of the oxygen that you're breathing right now was made by organisms. All of the water that you will drink today was filtered by organisms. All of the food obviously comes from organisms and we can't live on this planet by ourselves. And, you know, plus obviously there's the moral imperative, like who are we to drive these things that have their own three and a half billion year history into extinction. Um, but you don't hear people talking about the biodegradation biodiversity crisis enough because it's it's not a news event when when the last of a species passes you know when some poor animal crawls into a hole at night and dies and and that's it it's not a news event in fact people don't know that it it's happened that the ivory bill woodpecker that went extinct about a hundred years ago you know biologists are still arguing about whether it's truly extinct or not because these things just kind of fade away and so it hasn't it hasn't caused the same kind of alarm as the climate crisis but you know i try to always say climate crisis i don't say global warming because that sounds kind of nice really doesn't it it's the climate crisis um and i usually try to follow that, follow that up with climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis because these are the twin existential crises what the pentagon calls the great threat amplifiers that we have to get right or else everything else that you care about, whatever other issues you're passionate about, they don't get solved if we don't solve these two things. So these are really the things that I think everybody needs to throw their energy into. And we can all do what we can as individuals. There's a lot of things that we can do in terms of our personal energy consumption and our, our consumption of products, et cetera. But we all know that the, the, capricious stroke of a pen of a, you know, malintended uh, political leader can wipe out everything that all of us can do for, for our entire lives. So what's the most important thing you can do is, is to vote and to vote for people of whatever party that are going to um, support a, a green, verdant, sustainable planet that we can actually live on. This idea that you know, I bristle when I hear Elon Musk talk about we're going to put a million people on Mars. No, we're not. Mars is terrible. Mars is an awful place. Um, I would love to visit Mars. I want to see people explore there. I, I want to see them put the Explorers Club flag on Mars. But we're not going to live there. We have an entire continent on Earth that we can't even live on. Antarctica, I looked it up. There's been 11 babies born there. And, you know, Antarctica has niceties like air and water. Um, we're not going to, you know, move to Mars. There's no planet B. And the next stellar system is four and a half light years away. We're not going there. So we are stranded together on this tiny little rocky lifeboat in space. 
and all we have is each other and we have to get this right because there's no planet b amen to that awesome thank you yeah what i what a what a perfect sort of um point to end on thank you kenneth that was uh just a, just a different dig, you know, I think you'd said in one of your talks that, you know, um, there is only one history um, and we have the opportunity to create one that could end in the right way. And so, yeah, great, great baton to pass. Uh, good luck with the museum and all the expansion up the road. Um, I think um, uh, Emma popped in the chat there if you want to catch up with with Kenneth. Um, his LinkedIn profile there. And if they ping you through there, they can get your email and connect directly. Is that right? Yeah. Um, honestly, I don't look at LinkedIn very much. Um, I'm more of a Twitter, Instagram guy. Got it. But I'm there as well. Twitter uh, at Ken Lacovara. Instagram is Kenneth Lacovara. Excellent. All right. Brilliant. Well, we'll share that with everybody. Um, and then the museum, I see a question here, is in uh, southern New Jersey, about a half hour outside Philadelphia. It's called the Edelman Fossil Park Museum. And we will open in uh, May of 23. Excellent. Hopefully we'll make it for them. And we have here, um, Gary, would you raise, uh, wave your hand? Gary Staub here. You look at all those interesting things in the background there. Gary. Yeah, I see that. Hands down, the world's finest paleo sculptor, and he's the person who's creating all of the dinosaurs and sea creatures and other things for us in the museum. What? Yeah. Awesome. Can't wait to get down there. We'll do a bit of a Elevation Barn trip one day and get a full full gang. So oh, thank okay. you so much. Thank, thank you so much for your generous time. Um, loved it. I could sit here and chat for hours on this stuff. It's just like, it's just like Nat Geo, you know, happy time for me. So thank you, Kenneth. I know you, you're a busy man. You've got lots going on. Really, really appreciate it. Awesome. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Lots of love. Kenneth Lacavara spent his life digging for rocks. Kit Delorier spent hers conquering them. Listen to Elevate Season 4, Episode 8, with the first person to climb and ski the Seven Summits. Thank you.